0: ladies and gentlemen welcome back to broken oars podcast and for us it's been a little bit of a while apologize if this intro is a little bit rusty but please rest assured that the main body uh this podcast will more than make up for it Aaron, why don't you tell everybody who we've been speaking to
1: Sorry, are you basically telling everyone, our our listener, our one listener?
0: Our special friend.
1: Our special friend, that we are basically serving them a shitty starter, but don't worry, the main course is fantastic. Yes. (laughs) Fair enough, I can't argue with that.
0: I mean, in comparison to the main course, the starter is just going to be a bit shitty. I'm sorry, the, the main course is a little bit special, isn't it?
1: The main course is special and and the reason why it's special, dear listener, is because the person who is our guest today is a man who pulled five, two kilometres in a row in the service of Race the Thames and London Youth Rowing. And his his name is Lewin Hines. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Lewin, your your amazing performance in Race the Thames.
0: Briefly, briefly, I, I, I thought we could generally talk about what has been a fairly intense kind of like six weeks of rowing machine activity and that would be good because there's actually a lot to unpack there and there's a there's a very very big shout out to be made to London Youth Rowing Andy Hodge and the Race the Thames 2021 mob in general but no no we we're, we're going to talk about somebody vastly more important uh more capable and more knowledgeable
1: oh, i know who it is i know who, who it is who's is. it you're, you're talking about me and the fact that I fell in last night at Ebchester and became a proper scholar. Is that it? Is that what we're, we're talking about? We're
0: also going to talk about the fact that, yes, you finally have baptised yourself in water that has seen, you know, oars rather than just like a Catholic priest's rather gnarled hand.
1: You you know the gentleman Wim Hof who advocates swimming in, in glacial rivers and cold showers every morning and
0: yeah, he's uh, Scandinavian, isn't
1: he? he? He he does have a certain Teutonic um,
0: bent to his philosophy. Oh, my God, he's not German, is he? So tragic when you meet a really stupid German because you think they're all meant to be intelligent. And then you meet, like, one who says, yes, what you need to do is swim in glacial water. It's like, no, you don't. You'll freeze to death, you daft bastard.
1: I, I don't remember that quote from Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator, Lewin, that you've just done there, where where, where the Terminator to, to get ready for battle would go swift. I thought of Wim Hof in the split second between me burying my bowside blade, thinking I've got this, I can save it, realizing that I couldn't, then also thinking Lewin is really going to take the living piss out of me just before I bit the water hard. After I actually hit the water... Um, I think Wim Hof might be right because I couldn't think of anything else other than how freezing cold it was because obviously the rivers in the northeast um, are proper rivers. They're not heated like the rivers that you have down south.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, they're not. We, we we do have gently warmed rivers thanks to um, the hot air leaving 10 Downing Street at the moment being exchanged with the Thames. And, and that one seems like a quite sort of comedy relaxed capsize a sort of like oh 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 i'm going i'm going not i'm running, i'm running, oh it's going fast it's smooth it's we're rating above 30 we're why is it dark and cold <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just this kind of like moment of like brilliance to this moment of being upside down and wet <laughs> and and that is that is the best capsize. That, that is the capsize that you need. Just that that moment of sheer confusion about why everything is dark, cold and wet suddenly when you have been rowing so well.
1: I can definitely say that it, it wasn't one of those. I was rowing so well and then the world turned dark, cold and wet. I was all over that river like a drunk at closing time. I had time to process that I buried the bow side blade. I had time to think it's okay. I can catch this. And I had time to realize that I wasn't going to. So just if we're not talking about, um, you and the Spitfire team and race, the Thames and London youth rowing, and we're not talking about me finally, you know, breaking my duck as a, as a single scholar, I honestly can't think who we might be talking about in this episode.
0: We're talking about a man. And I, I say this with full consideration who is probably one of the greatest sweeper athletes of all time, Mr. Eric Murray brought rowing out of the Olympic and Oxford and Cambridge boat race ghetto. He popularized the sport. He was utterly unafraid to demonstrate what he was doing at all stages of the Olympic cycle. And he was both one of the most magnificent technicians you'll ever see rowing a boat and a physical specimen almost without compare. Um And we got to talk to him with absolutely no filter on. I, I, I don't know if there is if, if there's like a wormhole between Yorkshire and New Zealand. <laughs> but you know, he has a straightforward bluntness and confidence that I've only ever seen at that kind of top end of the M1. And he knows what he's talking
2: about.
1: No filters, no punches pulled. I think we should just let him talk for himself.
2: I think we should. i ready to paint and sand and all the other shit. And there were many days, cause we cause we, had, we were locked down in March. So it was quite it was still quite warm and hot. Um, and like, I'd be on the beers all day like all day from about nine in the morning and just be working, drinking, working, drinking. It was so bad. It was so bad, but so good at the same time.
1: I find that it helps with the edging when you're doing very fine gloss work. It just steadies the hand somewhat.
2: Oh, it does. It does. I'll agree with you there. I briefly went over those questions that someone put on. I'll just wing it. Whatever you ask me, mate, we'll go for it.
0: I mean, we've got this sort of athlete welfare thing going on. And very much the move in the UK is all about kind of like no athlete must feel uncomfortable or unhappy or disappointed with their, you know, kind of their time as an Olympic athlete. I I think you've kind of been quite strong. I mean, there was that thing that you put up on Rowing Illustrated that was like really quite strong saying, you've got to be ready for disappointment. You've got to be ready for the brutality of sport you've also talked about like the new zealand canoe and kayak squad oh yeah and i mean yeah
2: yeah 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 you know that
0: that, that's that kind of stuff is you know it's very sort of countervailing some of the chats we've we've had where people are are talking about like the importance of emphasizing athlete welfare possibly even at the expense of high
2: performance yeah, well, this is the, and this is the this is the part because like, it's it's a real tricky thing to talk about because um, like I've never seen a coach like bullying a person, okay, like saying "fuck you, you're useless, man, you're terrible," you know, if you don't pick, buck up your game, I'm going to kick you out. You'll never be right, you know, that sort of shit. I've never seen it, but I've seen coaches going, "Look, we need some improvement. Like, we've got to get better because we're not going to keep up with the field. Of this, um, we need you to be pushing a little bit hard, you know, this sort of stuff." And so where does the fucking line draw? Because that, that to me is just coaching and it's realistic going, hey, at the moment, you're, you're off by 2%. Where do you think you're gonna get when you fucking turn up over to a race? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. You got people going, oh, I'm getting sure, I'm getting pressure, you go, expect what's gonna happen. And, and I think it, it is, it, it, you won't find too many people in like my generation that's sort of finished or whatever that will sort of turn around, going, "Oh, you know, yeah, bully, bully, bully." Whereas this whole next group of people, like, I, I hate to say it, but just the entitlement and stuff, and like, "Oh, but I should be allowed to be in that crew." And you're like, <laughs> selection, you know? What I mean, your you're number, your number ten on the erg. Why do you think you should be in the top four? You know what I mean? It's just all this sort of shit. It's a real, it's a real delicate, buddy balance, eh? I don't know
0: if you've run across Tristan McLaughlin on Twitter or or social media at all, but he's very, very big on this. And we've had him on and he he makes some really, really good points. And he kind of says that the line is getting drawn by the people who he considers to be abusive. Sort of like the line between sort of like tough coaching and what is abusive coaching. And he's saying it's the, it's the, it's the abusers in his words who are drawing that line to keep themselves safe.
2: I, I see. I, I would go as far to say from what I've seen that it doesn't come from the coaches. It comes from higher up. Oof. Well, well, yeah, but you've got, like I've seen meetings, you know, and, and I've never been in one, but you've got high performance director, you've got Tanner sitting there going, right, we're not on speed. Your crews, your crew, your crew—you know, whatever—and going, we need five, we need six medals this year. Blah blah blah. Where are they coming from? And so, where's the pressure coming from? It's not the coach; it's him. And because he's going, we need this for our thirty million euro, well, what, uh, like twenty million pound fucking fund. And like, row New Zealand's no different. You know, we get we get like sixteen million bucks a cycle, and that comes from the results that happen at the Olympics. And who's in charge of that? It's the high-performance director. So they're the ones that I reckon are the ones that are putting the pressure down on the coaches who then put the pressure down onto the athletes. So if there is any disconnect, I don't think it's a coach. Like, why would a coach do it? Like, the only reason they're doing it is because they want to make the crew better. They don't want to belittle anyone. They don't want to, like, you know, I I just can't see it happening. I reckon it's way up here, and it's just that they, uh, like, their job is based around that. And they're the ones getting the big bucks, like our high performance here, and tanner must he must have been getting what two two three hundred thousand pounds a year must have been you know what i mean i'm not going to disagree with you i mean no but and so so he's his job of earning that money and having a fucking great lifestyle is dictated by the crews at the bottom and so he just pushes the pressure all the way down and that's why i reckon it comes from up here and not in the middle
1: lewin started smiling halfway through that because he's made the point before that it's the athletes that end up working for essentially just slightly above minimum wage in the uk who end up with knackered (laughs) bodies completely broken you know leaving the sport at 32 or 35 and, and then having to find their next career and it's the the performance directors and the coaching teams who end up having quite nice 20 and 30 and 40 year careers with good pensions at the end of it (laughs) Uh, And Lewin's made made the point that, yeah, but without the athletes, what have you kind of got? But the the chain you've just drawn, it's drilling down from the top, which is we need this amount of medals to keep our funding coming in, which goes to the coaches, but it's the athletes who then carry the can for it.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, you want to rip into it, man? Yeah, go go for it, man. No, at least we can talk about all this as we go, eh?
0: Yeah, I mean...
2: I reckon, I, reckon, I reckon we're losing some good stuff right here. I mean, I, I'll, yeah.
0: sorry, I mean, I, I, um, it stops recording as soon as we, we come off on. So we, we can, we've got all that. That's, oh,
1: OK. We started that, doing this with Hodge, so Eric, when, we, when Hodge came on. And we basically started the podcast. He was talking about Lewin's wallpaper. Um, so <laughs> just to kind of wind back, at the start, you, you, you yeah. talked about an athlete coach dynamic and the feeling that it's coming from the top. Have you ever, have you ever experienced either yourself or seen yourself something that you thought it's come from the top? It's these coaches have been told, right, we need X gains in the next, in the next part of the cycle. Have you ever been witness to something that might've pushed the line between tough coaching, pushing people on and, and that kind of toxicity that that you're talking about?
2: Not really. Eh? And this is the thing I like, I, I guess if, The, I, I, we were pretty lucky because we, we were winning. Okay. And so, um, when you're winning, you're not getting the pressure. Um, uh, like I can't really remember back, like when we were back in the four year, you were getting, you're getting pressure from the selectors. Like, come on, you know, we're going to keep the speed up. You know, if you want to win, you've got to do this. So you're getting pressure to perform, um, not pressure from like the high performance end, um the only couple of times that I've really, uh, like felt, and this is why I mentioned that was that, you know, when I, in 2011, I was going to come back when, when my son was being born and we had to have a meeting about it, you know, like we had to have a meeting with every man and his dog, like saying, Hey, uh, and they're all going, Oh, this is going to affect your performance and this and that. And that was the one point where I thought, hang on, this isn't, is this about me or is this about winning medals? You know what I mean? Like in any normal situation, you should have gone, great idea, how can we help? But it wasn't that situation. Mm. And and I know, that I know that there's layers upon layers of stuff because if you do it for one person, you've got to do it for everybody, okay? Um, I felt that I was in a position with, hey, I've won a few world championships and, and we're looking good, you know, um, surely I get a little bit of leeway. Now, if you're just the person that's just made it into the team and you're like, hey, I need this time off to go and do that, that's not acceptable, okay? In my books, that's a no-go because you can't. But if you're someone like, um, if you were like Pete and Andy and they were like, look, you know, we don't want to go to these World Cups because, you know, I want to do this and I'm going to get married so I'm going to take like a couple of weeks off during the season, go for it. You know, And and, the, and they should say, how can we support you in that? Okay, here's a program that we want to do off-water before you come back. And just remember, we just, you know, the overall theme, we know you want to win as well as we do. How can we support you? So, that to me was that situation. And then just the, just like that's why I mentioned that it's just comes from higher up because when, when Dick did have a spat at us and he had a bit of a Barney, um, like when, when, when he walked out of the room, the high performance director said to us, What did you do to him? And we're like, Hang on, you should be turning around saying, Mate, that's not acceptable what you just did to the boys. Um, you shouldn't be the other way around, like it was our fault to him. You should be like, hey, and he should have stopped it halfway through. You know what I mean? So I, I didn't classify that as bullying because he just lost the shit and he was just stressed or whatever the hell it was. And we all have those occasions we were like just lose it. Um, it was just like, wow, <laughs> this, this is pretty funny. Well, I thought it was funny. <laughs> Hamish didn't. Um, and, and, and that's the situation. But you see where it, I feel that the top is just pushing it down. Um, and and I do, and I 100% believe, because, like, I don't know how the model works overseas, and I don't know how it does in every country, um, but, you know, if coaches are on a salary, there's no bonuses here. So, like, if your crew wins or it doesn't, you keep getting paid. You know, athletes, we just get a different level of funding. So the athlete wants to, needs, should I say, to win more than a coach needs them to win. And the high-performance manager is the one sitting at the top saying, we need you to win. We need as many medals as we can. So they're sort of pushing pressure down. The middle people are like, yeah, okay, yeah, I see that. I want them to win as well. But crew losers, who cares? They keep getting paid. They don't lose their money. Whereas, like, the athletes down the bottom, you risk losing your place, losing the squad placement, losing your funding. And it's just like, wow. So, there's that disconnect. So I, I, when, I, when I I keep thinking about it and going, you know, coaches are bullying people, I just don't, I don't know. And that's why I, you know, I, I have seen cases, but they haven't been sporting cases. So there's been one here which happened in cycling where one of the female um, athletes and the coach, you know, having a bit of a go at each other. And and so that's fine, okay? I, I truly believe that that's fine. They're adults consenting, that's fine. And he wasn't part of the selection, but you can see where it does cross the line. The problem was that they were saying to her training partner, Hey, don't say anything. You need to keep your mouth shut. There you go. So you know what I mean? That's that's not, it's not bullying, but it's right on the line of like, Whoa, hang on. That's slightly threatening. Is that going to affect me? How do I read into that? So I can see that side of things, but, um, I just I keep looking at it, and, and I keep wondering, and I and I understand that yes, we need to have, in terms of sport, we need to have a little bit better um, ways around looking at it, fixing any problems that possibly are there. Um, but we've got to keep realising what the hell we're doing. It's high performance, you know, and it's and th- the reason that I I truly believe that all of this pressure and all of this stuff is coming from the top. It's no different if you're in business. Okay, you're the CEO or you're the general manager. We're we're not making money. We're not making money. So what do you do? You put pressure on everyone below you because you can't make the money. You're not the one at the at the coal front. So what do you do? You know. And so you start pushing and pushing and pushing these people down below you, um, and you push the middle management who are now pushing like lower management or the the workers. And everyone's like, man, he's on my case all the time. Who started that? It wasn't, it wasn't them, they didn't start it for no reason. It came from up here. Um, and that's where I know they're sort of saying we're gonna review the processes for every sport and we're gonna look into it. But I just wonder if they're looking in the wrong place. And, and, but this goes right back, do you want medals or not? You know, if you want this to be, and I said in my article I wrote earlier here, if you want this to be fun and fluffy ducks, that's fine. Okay, but if you want medals, it's a different story altogether. Because you can't win medals by having an airy-fairy all the time. Oh, that's okay. Oh, you got eight this year. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. You might get better next year. It's like, no, we, we've got to lift our game. How are we going to do that? And you've got to put pressure on yourself. You've got to get pressure on you. Because like, we wouldn't have trained anywhere near as hard as if we didn't have Dick. Okay? And I guarantee you that all the people that got coached under Spracklin, all the people that got coached under Eugen, um, there's a whole range of them. And they would never have trained or been as precise as they were if they didn't have those people. And then they turn around and go, oh, you know, and and it's generally the people that are missing out are the ones that are coming back now going, hey, buddy, yeah, I felt really like, oh, this happened to me. And it's like, yeah, but don't be on the cut line. Don't be on the cut line. You know, if you're on the cut line, shit, shit goes down. <laughs>
0: You're basically saying if you want if you want victory if you want the medals, the pressure's going to be there.
2: Yeah. 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 And 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 we we had we had a huge amount of pressure, and I questioned my resolve sometimes because I was like, man, I don't know if I can do this. And and there'd be times where you'd, you'd be thinking you're rowing well, and the coach is just like harping on on the water, and then he'll get off and and really good piece. And he's like, need to push harder. It's just clear that you've got to work harder. You've got to be doing it better. You know, we've always got to strive for more. We've got to strive for more. Okay. And, and we ended up winning and you win the Olympics and you go, you know what, now I've got a foundation. I know what to do now. And I've said it many times to a lot of athletes. And I say it when I go and speak to corporate people and it sounds really stupid. You've got to learn how to win. You've got to learn how to win. You've got to learn what the package is in terms of training, in terms of like physiology psychology, everything, all comes into this package that allows you to win. And you've got to learn what that looks like. And you go, cause some years you'll get close and you'll be like, shit, we were so close. What do we need to work on? Cause this was good, our fitness was really good, but our technique stuffed it up. Okay, it's technique. Or you could be like, technique, fitness was good. We just, we screwed up the race. Okay, we're into psychology. You know what I mean? And And that's what it's about. And so you've got to learn how to win first. Then when you win, you take that framework that you've already got, you've got all the little facets in there, and then you can progress on there. So once we, once we had won in London with Dick, it was like, man, I, I don't want to go down that, that track of, of, of banging my head against the brick wall every day and just row like 14 sessions a week with nothing in between. Um, I want to do this differently. So you go on a different track but you still know the framework that requires you to win because we've learned how to win in the in the past. So now all we're doing is we're gonna change what we're doing, we've still got all the data, and then we went out and we kept winning, okay? And that's it. So we completely revolutionized our training, but we was we could still go out there and win because we had learned how to do it in the first place. And I think that's a key to a lot of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on that, I- we when we rode at Agecroft, our coach Dennis O'Neill said most people, for example, when they go to Henley for the first time, they don't row the race, they row the event. If you're a club rower and it's kind of your it's your Olympics sort of thing. I mean, there's so much to unpick in what you said. I mean, firstly, how did you revolutionize your training? But also when you're talking about coaching there, you're actually allowing your coaches, and when you mentioned people like Jurgen and and Andy Hodge talked in very similar terms about him. You can have athlete welfare at the forefront. And listening to Jurgen talking to Martin recently, it's clear why he was as successful as he was, because he wasn't just cracking the whip and flogging people. He he knew when to back off. He talked very eloquently about on Red Grapes Fifth that there were times when when he was off the pace, and there were times when he maybe wasn't testing and and being the dominant athlete in the squad that he had been for the previous eight, 10, 12 years. But the, the, the job of a coach is not just the data side, it's the intangible stuff of how you build the crew and how you put those elements in place. And that's a learned Mm -hmm. process. And unless you go through the process and it's a hard process, the pressure's there for a reason. It's to push you to your height.
2: You have to, And, and failure, failure, you've got to fail. And, and, you know, I, I know it's it's sort of one of these terms at the moment sort of um, that a lot of people get and they talk about is that vulnerability. Um, you know and and we were like we did never thought about it ever in our early part. You'd just be so disappointed when you lost. But I think in a way, we, I was I was always quite realistic about my expectations and we managed to take that through with what we did. So you know going into Athens when we went when we went in the four, i was like man if we make the final here that's awesome okay and then we got fifth and you know and we and we tried to go toe to toe with everyone for like the first 750 and we did and we blew you know it's like but we weren't good enough to be there and then every year after that it was like i think we're good enough to make the final i don't know if we're good enough to be there and we kept moving you know next year it was a bit closer and then this in oh seven, we were like man we've got a really good crew here i think we've got the magic and then we won and then I wait, we were slightly off. So we were like, man, I don't know how this is gonna go. And and so that was that's the way you've got to be able to do it as an athlete is learn from your mistakes and learn from shit that's not going right and learn from the numbers that, that have been given to you. You know, there's no point in going doing a three day um like thousand meters before you start racing, you know, and in the pair, if we did if we did like three fifteen, I'd be like, Man, that's not good enough. You cannot win a race doing six thirty. You've got to be subbed that. And if you can only do 315 for like a K and a pair, you know, you've got to be scratching your head going, shit, we, we might not be able to do very well here. And that's the thing is you've got to learn from that. And then when you go out and train, it's pushing the boundary. So you don't make it back to the dock. You know, you, you die with a K to go. And you're like, man, okay, right. How do we make this more efficient? You know, you hit your speeds and, and you don't be happy if the, if the coach goes, look, you know, you out of this 45-minute piece that we did, you know, you only really hit your speeds for about 25, 30 minutes. You go, right, not good enough. You know, but you've got to push yourself to that limit to be able to find where you go. Um, and that's the failure. That's the vulnerability that you've got to put yourself in. Otherwise, you're just not going to get anywhere. And, and we learned that pretty quickly. Um, and especially in our four years, like, wow, probably the whole eight years that we were with, Like our training just evolved around trying to pace people that were faster than us all the time. And of course, half the, I wouldn't even say half the time, probably 75% of the time, we just couldn't keep up. But the fact was that we tried, you know, and so we learned how to fail. Like, okay, we'll try and keep up, try and keep up, we didn't, you know. Um, And that's the thing is if you're not pushing yourself to those levels, you never know how hard you can go. You never know how fast you can test, you know, all this sort of stuff. And that's really what a lot of people need to do.
1: Sorry, Lewin, can I just ask one more before you- Yeah, no. Yeah, it, it, it's just what you're actually saying is, Lewin and I have talked before that as rowers at, at every level, you tend to think we're all quite strong-willed individuals, but you're actually suggesting, and if I've got this wrong, then just say so, you almost have to take your, your ego and the fact that you're Eric Murray and, and Hamish Bond and you know fastest pair in history and all of the rest of it, and put it to one side and allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to fail in order to get better. Whereas most people tend to look at rowers as these huge strapping monsters who are bulletproof and they, they just walk through brick walls in the pursuit of gold medals and nothing ever phases them. Is is it really just taking the ego, which you need to win and, and parking it to go, right, we need to fail here to get better.
2: Oh yeah. and And like, you've got to cut it down. Like it's, you know, you've got to break that down. And, and, you know, the coaches do it for you in training going backwards, you know, from World Champs State to a World Cup, you know, and, and so your program's all backed out. And so they there become – so you've got to do that work early and you've got to do it hard. You know, this whole, like, for you guys, this off-season, which for us was our summer, which was perfect, um, and you're just punching yourself away. And so, of course, you know, that's why we went out in singles, like against Mahe and stuff. It's like try and keep up with that big guy. And it was like, man – you can keep up with him on the way up and then you start on the way back, you got 10K row back from the bridge and you'll be there for like 3K and then boom, he's pissed off. And you're just like, oh we're out, holy shit. Okay. And then you're like, okay, do I do I up the rate to try and stay with him? Or do I just accept the that I'm gonna like I'm gonna fail here? And so you go, no, nah, no, nah, I don't to up the rate. So he's on he's on 18, 19. So you're up on 21, 22, trying to stick with him and you go, I'm gonna try and stick with him to this point yeah, I'm still here. He's upped it. And then now you're keeping on. And so it is, it's just the ability to do that. But also you just can't be satisfied. And, and, you know, it's, it's no different with any sport. You know, people go, oh, did you ever have the perfect race or the perfect round of golf or the perfect uh shot or whatever like this? And you go, well, no, because if you did, you quit, you know? So you're, you're always searching all the time. And so for us, you know, you go out and we'd do some phenomenal training pieces and you go, man, that was fast. It's super quick. But you're like, yeah, but we still hit too much water. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Nah, we still had that pretty rough patch through the middle when we went through that wash wasn't good enough. And so it's just the ability to look at that and go, we've got to just keep trying to be the best, stay at the top as much as we can. Um, and, and that was it, you know, we just wanted, and, and I think a lot of it was driven by Hamish because he just hated not winning, you know, in training and in racing. And so I just bought into that as well. Cause most of the time I'll be like, oh, you know, yeah, but it's only a 5k in training and he'd be like, nah, and so I, in the end, you know, we learned a lot from each other. So we'd go out in a 5K race, you know, open rate as fast as you can. And we'd be like second or third on the on the prognostics, you know, probably normally behind the lightweight woman's double because they're super, super fast. Um, and, and we'd be like, okay, we're, we're 0.3% behind, right? How fast is that? Okay, that's, we've got to find five seconds. We've got to find that next week. We've got to find it. we need to be on top. And, and so you're just driving yourself all the time to be in that, that level. And, and I know when you start out, you're not going to be that person, but if you want to be the best and you want to keep winning and you want to be consistently like winning those medals and stuff like that, that's the attitude you've got to bring to it. If you don't, um, and you're content with going, Oh yeah, but we're in a four. It's not very good. We're like middle of the pack and we're about three or 4% behind. You're never going to get it. You're never going to get it. You know, you have to be just pushing yourself and not accept it. But, at the same time, sometimes you do have to accept it because you're like, that's just where we are right now, okay? And then how do we get better? Because I've been in those positions where we're middle of the list going, shit, what are we gonna do, you know? And that's where, that's where the hard work comes in, that's where the grind comes in, that's where the graft of the traders is, is in that area. It
0: seems like, from what you just said there, that the training, there seems like there's a lot of like, not just long stuff, but hard stuff as well, and you know. Yeah, so listening to you talk to Crossy, it didn't seem as as though it was like that kind of UT two, UT three. Keep the heart rate down. It's like find a way to go faster.
2: Uh so and and this is what I, I I and I you know we never did it as much, and I I still we we might have some data, and I I don't know if I'd ever find it. Um, you know everyone talks about like a certain number of tss you know like your training stress score and we've got to do x amount a week and if we do too much more than that we're going to overtrain and all this sort of stuff man i reckon we would have done 30 to 40 percent more than what people do now when we were with dick okay like just honestly um and 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 that was what it was it was just like it was relentless and it was long and it was hard and i've heard him say like stuff that if you're not pushing your athletes harder like if your athletes aren't breaking down you're not pushing them hard enough you know you don't know where their limits are and you're like Se- seems legit you know and and it sort of is you know if, if you're not wearing yourself down and you're not sort of getting some niggles how, how hard could you be training um and so that was the thing but i i still i don't know how a lot of other programs around the world work but from what happened in new zealand and for the last like at least decade if not longer probably you know, even 15, 16 plus years. The reason that we were so successful is just the centralization um, and the fact that we could race one another. We've got a massive lake. We can race each other over any distance that we want from like 15K down to like 250. Um, and and you just race against one another. And it's it's transparent. It's 15K thing on a wall. Here's your prognostic. And you're like, there you are okay and the top crews are the ones winning so you get this um you get it right slapped in your face every single day twice a week there'll be something on wednesday morning there's something on saturday morning slapped up you look at it and you go sweet that's good or you go hmm okay that wasn't our, that wasn't our best and so you've got you've got um you're getting you're getting tested twice a week with other people and you can use the other crews at the same time, you know, 10K race, open rate, and you're like, all oh, right, okay, here we go. Um, and, of course, it's all handicapped start. So, by the technically, at the finish line, everyone should cross it together. Okay, so whoever crosses that finish line first, top prognostic. So, of course, you've got to get through wash, you've got to get through everything to get to that point, but you've got a lightweight double sitting next to you, you've got a heavyweight double coming back at you, you've got... Other crews in front of you and you've got to cut them down so you just get tested all the time every week twice a week and I just don't know if any other program does that as as hard as what we do um, and it could be any distance any rate um, you know it could be four four Ks at, at at 26 or whatever the hell it is but you've got to be it you've got to be there and you've got to try and be at the top of the list and if you're not you've got to be disappointed and I think that's why the program here has been so successful Um, because there is no way, there is no way in hell that I would have gone out and trained as hard um, as we did by ourselves. Like if we were in the pier and it's like, right, go out in the pier, like we would have tried to push ourselves pretty hard and, and everybody does that, but there's no way that we would have done it without having training partners, having these race pieces twice a week. No way, no way in hell. And I think that's why you're always seeing that like New Zealand crews, majority of the time you've got a good handful, good half dozen or more top of the field because they just had this hard out racing system of just having faster crews trying to cut you down. It's not just you doing a time trial with nobody else. It's a time trial with four other boats, um, you know, and you're just under this race situation. So like I I still believe, and I know that like Canada is going to be one um, with Dick going there. And I don't know about a lot of other countries, I'd watch out for them if the Olympics go ahead. New Zealand's going to be fine. Everyone's going, oh, you know, you're not coming to race the World Cups. And I'll be like, yeah. But, and and this is one thing I hate saying, and, I, and it sounds so arrogant. Like, <laughs> there's probably only about three races in all our career that we did that would be in our top 20 of hardest races. You know, like, the, 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 world, the world champs at Carapero is right up there, probably probably number one. 2010. Uh, but then apart – 2010. Yeah. But apart from that, the, the number of races that we raced against Joe and Nathan in the double here on Karapiro and Dick would go, you've got a five-second head start, don't let them catch you. And you're going, come on, five seconds in front of a double that is world champions. And so they're there at 1,000. The we hold them for 500, and then we're trying not to let them piss off. Um, that's what we had to do. And so you're doing that in a race situation where when we turn up into a normal race environment, oh, we're in front, you know, and, and you're still trying to push yourself hard, but you don't know what hard is until you're trying to not let somebody pass you that you know is quicker than you, and you're doing everything in your power to beat them. Um, and that's what I believe the program here is so, has been so successful and has produced so many winners.
1: You're not turning up to race at the Olympics. You're racing every day for your seat and your and your position within within the squad. And it's gladiatorial i mean i'm sure that we we did talk to hodge a bit about you know training and he he said we we tend to think in britain that our rowers, you know we're we're very proud of our rowing culture we're very proud of of the success we've had we think our program delivers that success but he said man when we actually saw what what murray and bond were doing we realized why they were so quick because their training is just was just brutal
0: what I was going to ask you, and it, it's something that, particularly the comparison of you guys versus Pete and Hodge, was that it looked like, they, they their technique seemed to be very much within themselves. They were upright, they weren't kind of like this massive reach each. But when I looked, you know, when I've seen stills of you, yourself and Hamish, rowing, it seems like you were going for every single inch of stroke that you could. And Mm. were you, do you think that you were more willing to put your body, your backs, your knees on the line than the next guys out there?
2: Uh, So I, I tell, I tell people, you know, like rowing, rowing, Rowing's like a one year experiment, okay? You you throw everything into a big can <laughs> and you go, This is how we're gonna do our weights, this is how we're gonna do our fitness, and this is the this is the technique that we want to find, which which complements them. Because if you do, if you get if you get really strong, you can't do the technique as if you would do more miles because you're gonna be a little bit stiffer in shoulders, all this sort of stuff. So you do a one year experiment. Hey, this is a result, okay, that was good. Okay, let's change it next year, or let's continue it, or let's tweak it. And that's rowing in a nutshell. That's probably every sport in a nutshell. Okay, you 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 create. This is our this is our way we're going forward, and and you just do it. So in terms of our technique, um, we we didn't do a lot of technique with Dick. Like he'd talk about the boat movement and the feel, and just and bits and pieces, but. We never went out <laughs> We never went out for these these U U three sessions that you talk about and just okay, we're just gonna work on our technique and we're gonna paddle it along. Okay. Dick's Dick said to us in a in a meeting one time, he goes, You can change you can change technique from race to race. You can focus on technique from race to race. Okay. He goes, something doesn't go right. You're missing the catch or you're you're hitting the finish, whatever it is. We can adjust that by just doing a row before the thing and then going out and that's your focus for the next race. You can't make up a thousand kilometers overnight. Okay. And so that was the philosophy. It was like, do the work now, worry about that sort of shit later. Okay. And so you're, you're, you're doing your technique while you're under the pump and, and while you're doing it every single day. And that was the hardest part around a lot of the technique here. And that's why you see a lot of New Zealand crews, and if we go historically, if one looked at Rob Waddell and went, Mm, looks a bit ugly. And everyone looked at the twins and went, hmm, that looks pretty like jerky. Doesn't matter. They're winning. Okay. So they were just finding a technique that worked for the like the training that they were doing. You know, like those girls are sitting in a double doing like one fifty twos going down a course. And you're know, like, there's no way a woman's double should be going that fast, like in training at like twenty, twenty-two. You know what I mean? You're just like going, this is ridiculous. But that's what their training managed to make them do. So then there was just such a small gap between them going from training pace to race pace. Um, and that's what we found is that we were just trying to survive our training. <laughs> and, I, and and it was. It was survival of the training but trying to do the technique at the same time. And so we, we still were good enough in ourselves. And we had learned, going right back to your conversation, about learning shit when you're younger and in the early stages about what makes a bike move what we should be looking for, the focus points and stuff like that to be able to make our boat move. And it was for us, we were just trying to make that boat run as fast as we possibly could and just not put any effect on it. So we weren't, okay, we had great erg times, but we weren't that strong. Okay, we did not spend a we, Like after 2010, we didn't step a foot in the gym. So of course we did zero weights, but we did a lot of stuff on the water, bungee work, you know, power strokes, that sort of thing but it was, it was dictated in a in a rowing motion. So of course, that's why rating came up a little bit, power out of the blocks came down a little bit, but endurance over the race was just like, see ya, you know, and, and we'd leave people behind. Um, and so it was really, that was our focus for, for what we were trying to do. So there's so many ways to skin a cat, um, and we just had to package what we had and the way that we were doing it in order to make like supplement what we were doing, and that was basically as good as it could be.
1: So it was it was testing it in real in real world real time conditions.
2: We, because- yeah, we, and 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 like, you can't you can't just go and go. Oh, we're going to do like heaps more technique today. I oh, will go do some technique sessions because you're just wasting your time. This because you can do that technique, and like, we used to do it in the four. You know, and you just spend days upon days and sessions upon sessions going. Yeah, that's it. That's an, Oh, that's a nice fit. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, cool. And then you'd start to get up to speed and you'd lose it. And you go, well, hang on. Maybe we just need to row under pressure and find out how we can make it work under pressure. And I know it, it, there, there is a crossover because you can't do that when you're younger. Yes, you need to break that down. But the more and more work you can do, the better and better you're going to have in your bank of, of uh, physicality and of being under pressure so that when it matters rather than just like breaking the stroke down so oh like every Tuesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon we're going to go do 10k and it's going to be nice and, and fluffy and and we're just going to really just oh that's a nice catch you know all that sort of stuff um, we just didn't do that and like does that work i don't think it works young but as you get older and you get more experienced you just need to be because the margins are so small that if you're missing out on kilometers here every week or you're missing out on on time and heart rate zones um, you're missing out on what the best people in the world are doing. And it does. It comes down, you know, it comes down to, man, we did an extra, like, 200Ks more than these this other crew, and that could be the difference between you and that. You know, it, that's literally what it falls down to.
1: Because in, in, in Britain, uh, historically, we had different styles of rowing you you would have a a Thames tradesman style with a kind of a a hunched back and getting as much length as you could or you might have a Cambridge style which would seem to be more elegant because of all of you know the British class associations and and that kind of thing and then as Jurgen came in we got this GB kind of standardized style Peter Holmes the uh, brother of the late Andy Holmes was our coach at h for about a year he wanted a more Spracklin-esque approach which is just get as much pressure on the pin as you can and as much pressure on the face and do the work and do the miles, and the technique will almost sort itself out. If if you just go as hard as you can, you'll you'll eventually work it out. You've got enough technical knowledge to know when something's working, when it's not. But the main thing is doing the work, and the miles in the bank will eventually bring the technique up with the with the fitness and the power as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, and 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 and, and technique develops over time as well. And like you know, I don't think you can give and because you know what we were doing in our technique. And sort of probably the last five years in the peer, like you couldn't try and teach a 21 year old to do that. I don't think. Okay. Like you could, you could, you could arrange it slightly and go, these are, these are the sort of things you want to think about. But I don't think you could have given them what we were doing, you know, real patient around the finish and zipping into the front and all this sort of stuff, because they just wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and that's, and that's the other thing with technique is technique has to develop for, um, your body shape, your body style, the way that the program wants to go, you know, um, because if you are, like generally, you looked at the British, tall guys look really strong because they've done a lot of weights in the weights room. So your technique is dictated by your size. Whereas, like, Hamish and I, Hamish is short, you know, like he's, he's six foot one or six foot two, you know, 90, 87, 88 kilograms most of the time. You can't get him to row like one of those guys, okay, because he just can't. Okay, he's still pulling probably the same, if not better, number on the row machine, but that comes down to the endurance that he's doing. Um, And so that's really where you've got to look at it as well, is that are you trying to get a hold because you've got to try – and the thing with us is that we could sort of slot back in with a lot of other guys, but I don't think it would have worked very well. Whereas with you guys, you can take crews, you can take people, put them in different crews, and they're going to go pretty well. And that's the thing, is if you want a whole program that is producing good results – or do you want a few people producing exceptional results? And this is where numbers come into it. So with you guys, with like big programs, um, you know, like the Germans and stuff like that, they've got oodles of numbers. Whereas here in New Zealand, for a while there, we had like, what, we had like six, seven heavyweight men, and that was it, like good enough to go. You know, we were sending a double, single pair, and maybe a four, you know, and that was it. we just didn't have the numbers, so you can't package everyone and say, right, everybody has to do this the same way. Coaches, this is the way we're doing our technique, and it's the same in school programs. You're like you, you've, you've got to try and find a technique that everybody can do, so that if someone's injured, put someone else in, goes just about as fast. Um, otherwise, if you're just trying to do different techniques with different crews, you know, it's just not really going to work that well. Um, and I feel that's, you know, that that's just part of it.
0: Could uh, could I sort of like slightly change change the the tack of things and, and talk about sort of yep. the the Kiwi pair and and yourself as as people and how you it seems like you guys were the first kind of social media era stars of rowing, you, <laughs> you, you, and you, you did a lot of things that were very new. You kind of like you published the erg. Results. You had like little videos and stuff like that. You you also clearly had a very, very easily definable public persona, and I've I've always wondered how much of that was. That's just what you wanted to do, and how much was it?
2: Uh, Yeah, we thought about Um, this. Okay, so the the first the first started when we were in the four. um, You know, yeah, social social media shit, I don't even know. It wasn't even really about. So I I used to build a website and it was, you know, Kiwi4. And so when you're overseas, because you, you're, you're emailing people or whatever, but like every couple of days you can write a blog. You know, it's basically back in the blog days. And it would just go on our website. So people could be like, hey, we're in we're in uh, Czech Republic training. Look at it, it's bloody 40 degrees, this and that. Training's going well, blah, blah, blah. Just telling, almost just keeping everybody that's following you um, behind it. And then once, yeah, like social media started coming out, and like Facebooks and stuff like that, yeah, we created the page. And so then, um, around that, it was r- still like just information, giving people information and and learning about you and stuff like that. And and to be fair, like we we were we were the first ones going, hey, you know, um, people want to know about us, people want to know what's happening, um, you know, as we saw it growing. And so the posting side of it, like Hamish, was not really. Um, he did later in the time, but not originally. It was sort of, I was sort of driving that side. And so when a couple of times, when I started putting some results online, um, there was a few people going, Oh, do you think you should be putting that online? I was like, well, I don't care. You know, like if I put that, I did a, five forty two a on the erg up online, I don't give a shit. What, what does that mean? Someone else is going to look at it and go, shit. Does that mean they're going to work any harder? Maybe. <laughs> do I care? No. You know? And because, because that's it, you know, like, People are all secretive. Oh, we can't let anyone know about our earth times. No one gives a shit. Like what's that gonna mean to them? Nothing, you know? And, and this was what I used to find is I was like, oh, well, and then, so then in a way, as it started progressing, it's like, well, maybe I'm gonna try a world record here. And then then you put it online. And so people, then the attitude of people changes because they're like, holy shit, did he really just do that, you know? So then now it's putting doubt into other people's mind rather than them going, oh, I need to work harder. They're going to go i could never do that and so now all of a sudden they got doubt in their mind and hamish used to say it all the time and i i I can't remember where he said it the first time he said you know you could turn up on the line and look across at everybody and go and you could look at them and go i bet you none of these people are thinking oh yeah we're going to beat eric and hamish today because none of them had self-belief because none of them had ever done it before you know what i mean so this was this was just what we started doing and so a little bit of the social media started coming out as like, if you do something pretty phenomenal, the Rome world's going to look at it and go, oh my God, you know, and it was just, and it was like, this is what we're doing. And, and there probably, some of it, you probably didn't want to get out there, but some of it was just too, too, not like too good to, to, not. you know, like when I did, I think it was 2015 end of 2015 or start of 2016, you know, and I did four two K's three minute break in between and they were all sub six. You know, and everyone's just like going, oh, my God, (laughs) you know, like, and you just got about 150,000 views of people just going, I wish I could do one, (laughs) you know, I wish I could do one at that speed. And and, and that sort of, and that just puts you into that level. And so, and, and the other side of it as well, what you're doing is, is you're, you're creating that hype for our sport at the same time. So we were always big advocates of our sport, even here in New Zealand, like we had a really good following with like kids at school. Our club stuff was was really waning because of the way the program structure into performance centres were going. So we're just trying to keep people going. Oh, rowing's a pretty cool sport, man. Those guys are going well, so it keeps it in keeps it in people's heads rather than it like this petering out. Because I, like I I would be I'd be hard pushed to find that every country has a growing rate in in rowing. And, you know, I would say majority of them it's probably declining. You know what I mean? So you've oh, got to yeah. keep the sport. You've got to keep the sport like in the, in the limelight as much as you can so we really pushed that we had good me- media people around us that were like okay let's do an interview let's get you on this let's do that and it, it is just about keeping you in the limelight you know and that's why you know you find right through that late 90s like rowing and GB was massive because you had Stephen and Matt and of course you're doing docos and you're doing bits and pieces and people loved it and then it was a big deal massive deal. Um, you know and that and that's basically what we were trying to do for our sport here not so much for ourselves um, as much as it was for the sport um, and now you just see every single sports person if you don't have a social media account like you're just not getting the followers you're just not getting the people that want to support you and be wanting to watch you know that sort of stuff
0: okay. Yeah. Okay. This, this is bizarre with our lives at the moment because we, we are we, we're talking a lot to people about how would promote the sport both that. I mean, is, would you just say that that's something that GB Rowing can do? So, like, start putting the great stuff that they're doing in training off out in public.
2: Uh, I I think so. I I like you've got you've got people that are employed right as media managers. Every single country, one or two of them. Why aren't you going out and just taking videos and making cool little videos that you can edit? You go out in the morning and you follow a few crews and you put it online with a bit of music, two-minute video. People will watch it. It's on Instagram, real bang, done. Yeah. Twice a week, three times a week. <laughs> and then, and,
0: okay, so this is you, this is th- this is this is a very, very we we were talking to someone about this this morning, but yeah, this is a very.
2: It's not. It's not that hard, and of course, and. A lot of times you want to see it, you know, like the Sinkovic is a great it because they're making money out of it. You know, they've got, they're making a good lifestyle out of their stuff. And that's why you see a lot of stuff on media about them. You know, you see a lot of stuff on social media because they're, they're proactive. They're putting themselves out there. The sport of rowing is probably not that big in Croatia, but they've made it really big. Okay. And it's just because of the activity and it's nothing. They're not going out and doing a half an hour session 20 second clip of them doing a piece. What's that going to do? People going to watch that, going, oh, that looks pretty sharp.
1: Yeah, we talked to Jack Beaumont, uh, currently under club captain, and a GB Spiller just before Christmas. Uh, fantastic chat. And and he, Lou and I have talked about this before. We kind of know a bit about what's happening because we're rowers, so we're interested. And we look we look at whatever information's put out, and we'll you know we'll we'll talk about what might happen in, in the next cycle and 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 that kind of stuff. But if you stop an average man on the street in the UK and ask them to name a rower, that they, they'll still probably pick Steve first, then Matt, probably James. They might mention Kath. They might mention someone like Helen Glover because she's she's going to uh, come back after, after after motherhood. But Jack's point was, you know, trials should be open and they should be publicised, and scores should be, you know, scores should be put out. We had a chat this morning with a, a media guy at uh, British Rowing, saying, "Look, we we've listening to Hodge talking about." his legs shaking during the warm-up for the 2012 London Olympics, you know, which we thought was just a flawless row in the coxless fours. It was, it was a beautiful row. Why aren't they putting these stories out? And you just kind of think you are missing a trick if your dominant narrative is what Steve Redgrave did 20 years ago. And we're not taking anything away from that because it's unprecedented what he, what he achieved. It's a phenomenal mm. achievement. And the human drama behind it and the stories that the, the Gold Fever documentary brought out James with his amazing exploding hair, Tim with his self-inflicted injury crises, Redgrave, will he actually make the start line? It was compelling drama. But there are those stories in every rowing squad.
2: Oh, there are. And and I um like I just I I you sit there and you see what's happening with with the sport, and okay, I'm not I'm not one making decisions at the top. Um and and even like you know rowan new zealand's had to make big changes this year around like our national champs because we were dying man like we were we were dying in my books i was like man this is critical hard critical and have we struck the right thing i'm not sure so now what used to happen is basically we we just lost all our premier eights no one would no one would even come and, and race no one would even train because they're like well all the guys are coming back from the squad going to join the eight. And so I'm not going to make it. So I'm, unless you're in the pro, unless you're in these programs, you have got a lot of people that would love to be social rowers and they're just like, nah, not going to do it. Um, and so you've got, so now they've got like a draft where anyone from like that region can put their name in and they're basically just plucking people's names out of a hat. So they'll pick like three, three of the top guys that are in the program or whatever. And then the rest of the guys name out of a hat and a draft. Okay, and that's going to be cool. And then you're basically going to race a final. There's no heats, nothing, bang, final. Okay, so you're going, well, that's cool. That's, that's pretty neat. Okay, and then they're going to make like these mixed events and 500 sprint stuff and bits and pieces because we've got to jazz it up. You know, people people don't go like you, you guys and, and anyone watching this, right, they'll be like, I've got to do a whole training, whole year of getting up fucking early in the morning, going to work, coming back, training in the shit of the winter, all this sort of stuff, and I'm going to go and race and what for, you know, like, and I'm going to go race like these, these guys that have been semi-professional or whatever, oh, I'm not going to compete. I can't. So what are you going to do? You don't row. So then, then you've got to break it down and say, well, where does the sport need to go? Um, you know, and I still truly believe we need a sprint distance event. We need sprint distance fucking rowing in because I would go and race like a 300 meter rowing race. Now doesn't matter. <laughs> Like it doesn't because it's it's like all of forty seconds, fifty seconds. Who gives a shit? You can hold on for fifty seconds. Done. Fun. Everyone finishes within like, like five meters of each other. Oh shit! That was exciting. Um, and 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 because two k rowing is just it's taking too much time. And the, the the world's changed where people want shit right now. You know. We don't want to sit back and wait, look at, look at how e-commerce has gone. You know, shit. when I came over to the British Indoors two years ago and we're sit, sitting there and someone said, oh, yeah, you can order something at 10 o'clock at night and it's at your doorstep at 6 a.m. the next morning. And I was like, bullshit, there's no way that happens. And they're like, yeah, just jump on the Amazon and bang, it's done. I'm like, wow, okay. So the world has moved so fast and our sports just stayed where it is. And that's why we're in trouble. That's why we're losing IOC places and all this sort of stuff. So you go, well, okay, hang on. How do we keep people interested? How do we keep it involved? Okay, now we're trying to develop coastal. Is that the, is that the trick? I'm not sure. Indoor rowing. Yeah, that can be part of it. I think there's a, there is good element to indoor rowing because you get a lot more people. But how do we just keep jazzing up? How do we make rowing sexy? And like, I've listened to a lot of podcasts uh, with different rowers that always get asked the questions, you know, especially with like the row show boys, you know, what would you do if you're in charge? And a lot of people are like, "Hmm, short distances, this and that. And you go, well, why aren't we doing surveys in every single country? Why isn't World Rowing said to every country? Like, we need you to survey why people aren't rowing. And most people will say, I don't have the time. It's too long. I don't, you know, and so you've got to say, okay, so what does that mean to our sport? Do we need to become a T20 of cricket? You know, do we need to become, what, what is it? What do we need to do in order to make this happen? um and and that something needs to change um and so this is the whole thing with social media as well Is you've just people are in, in limelight all the time just posting social media look at the people that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars just posting pictures of their asses and shit all the time okay people want to see that but but the fact is that they're posting they're they're active so if you go oh i might follow Ryan new zealand or i might follow gb Ryan. And, and all the kids, and they're watching these guys, and they're having fun, they're having a laugh, and then they're out training. That is simple, easy. You pick up your phone, and you record 20 seconds, and you chuck it on. Done. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And like and, and that that whole transparency thing. Yeah, I, I see why people don't do it with the countries and bits and pieces, but same thing. Like, you know, we should be we, – we do the winter series here at New Zealand where we do, like um, – the racing, like with the like prognostic racing, handicap racing against different crews, and we get a pretty good crowd of like of of rowing supporters that come. Like I go and watch it because I know generally the gaps, and you'll be watching them come down. And you'll be like, shit, they're going quick, you know, because you can tell which crews out in front and they'll win quite comfortably. And you'll be like, man, they, and then you find out what sort of head start they got, and you'll be like, man, they managed to hold it or they open the gap. Um, so that's really cool. So. Yeah, like, we, we're, we're open, we're on Karapiro, but I guess Cavisham's like a bit, shut the gate, don't let anyone in. <laughs> and, and, and it I is, think.
0: it's tricky to get to. I mean, and, and to be honest, we've got trials, I mean, there are public trials where the results are all out there, but the fo- but after that, it's like the the next two sets of trials, no.
1: I think there's a certain thing, when, when you had people like Steve and Matt and they were, you know, premier oarsmen in the world of rowing. And, and, they, you know, they were these huge monsters with great erg scores. I think leaking out that Matt had just pulled a, a 544 and then walked off to make a cup of tea whistling was seen as a kind of a, it's a little bit similar to yourself and Hamish and going, look, you know, look what we've just done. You know, it's Ozymandias. Look upon my works, ye mighty, in despair, because we're going to kick your asses on the rowing lakes this summer. We don't seem to publicise in the way that you do, not just in terms of a little bit of uh, mind games with the opposition, but also to get yourself out there and promote your sport. We seem to, from the Redgrave Point, have had amazing success, but we've come, we've almost kind of closed in on ourselves a bit. I mean, what's your perspective on GB rowing from the outside?
2: Oh very secretive yeah really. everyone everyone's everyone's yeah everyone's just like oh oh they're doing their trials oh and and i think the only time because i like in the last few like there have been a few years where they used to film the finals of the like um of the pairs races and the singles and they they were quite good to watch um i i, I still and so that was good but yeah like <clears throat> a lot of the number stuff yeah it's it's a tricky one because, like, I wouldn't care, but you I, the program would care, okay? And this is where we get right back to all that shit we talked about at the start because as a selector, as a thing, if you get two pairs that are dead even and, and everyone's like, oh, shit, they, you know, third and fourth, they're really close, um, and then the early times are published and there's 0.2 of a second between, like, three of those guys, and you've got to drop one. OK, there's going to be people in the in, in public and everything just, just giving you shit going, oh, but they they've won their race by this much, but he was this much slower on the erg. So shouldn't that make him better because he was better on the water? And they're like, yeah, but you've got this bias element where you go, OK, he's been injured for six weeks over the winter and he's only been back here for like eight weeks and he's still pretty good, but he's going to get better see what i mean so that whole selection thing is like there is a certain day when things have to happen but there's another element of complexity that comes behind it and i just feel that a lot of sports are just like we don't want to deal with that shit because if the media do start getting involved which they always were right they were waiting you have the media scrum that turns up for selection and they're like why were these people selected here why have you got Why have you got Ed code in the four, you know, rather than such and such, you know, was he good? and you know, shouldn't you have had someone else? And so it's all that different bits and pieces in that element that comes behind it. So I can see why they do it. They, they don't do it, but I still feel like there could be a lot of change.
1: There was the, there was the whole point with the Sydney four where Tim was out. uh, I think it was the back injury, not the hand injury and Ed came in and, and they did really well. And then uh, Steve Redgrave had issues with his his diabetes and his colitis. And we now now know after listening to Jürgen's recent interview that he was actually going to Jürgen and saying, you should take me out. And I think what you're arguing for there, Eric, is coaches and selectors have data, but they also have intangibles that they have to take into account. And maybe British rowing, learning from the Redgrave experience, I, I remember the scrums around, well, does... Does Steve even deserve his seat in in the boat he's thirty seven coming up thirty eight can he still move a boat? Maybe they've just gone, you know what we just don't want to have to deal with that we don't have to deal with yeah
2: that that, that is one hundred percent because <clears throat> you get that in, in any sport um, and this is why like in my like trials and, and I know you sort of got to have them for certain reason, but if you could get uh, if you could get rid of having trials altogether, it would make it so much easier. You know, like if you could just have the squad and then you just keep rowing guys and you keep changing around. I know you want to get a crew at some stage and and lock them in and go, right, this is it. But you've got so much data coming through, like every week you've got people that are consistent. You've got people that are crap at the start of the season and then they start coming through. So there is, there's just such a huge element of data and um of historical stuff and knowing that people get better like I was before Christmas like generally most years I was terrible like I, my training was crap because I just I took a decent break put on about five kilograms and then I just spend like the first sort of 12 weeks just trying to get about half of that off and just getting my fitness back because I was like you know what I'm going to take a break because I need the break I'm not going to do basically nothing for four and a half, five weeks. And then I'll slowly build back into it. Whereas like when you are younger, you're like, no, no, I'm going to keep training through that break. I I need to get there. I need to get there. Um, And so if you took the data, if you said, right, selections in like end of December, I wouldn't make the team. You know, like, (laughs) and, and, but by the time, you know, January rolled around and we've done our real hard stuff over the new year and into that first week of, of January. And then by the time our 2K ERG test came up, end of January, start of February, bang, number one maybe number two when Mahe was still there, um, but generally number one, and you would like, oh, well, now I'm back. But if you'd got me to do that 2K in like, ah, start of December, she would have been a bit ropey. So, you know, that's, there is that element to it as well. So, yeah, I see all of that, yeah.
0: The coaches and the administrators now need to take a bit of responsibility in their own role for for handling that kind of like arguably not brilliantly informed public and press
2: opinion yeah yeah and uh i just like you know you sometimes wonder oh you know should i get involved in the program and you know even as an athlete you're like oh man you know i wish we could make a little bit of change here and there but there's just so much that goes on and you're just like what what will this do to the program and you've got to remember that you've got to take what how many people are in a normal program like 60 60 70 people you know what I mean? And you've got to get them all doing the same things. And, you, like, it, it just becomes – it is like a business running all of these different things together that have to work. Some people are getting different treatments. Some people aren't. Some people are new. Some people are old. Um, and and it, so what, it's a complicated mess, you know, and, and that's why it's really, really difficult around, like, what, what you want to do and what's currently being done – what should be done and what's logically going to be able to be done as well. You know what I mean? It's just so much different crap around a program um, that like, hey, you know, change is really difficult. And this is the one thing like change is hard to do because you've got to unwrap X amount of time of this is how we've done it, which has worked and produced results. Why are we changing? You know, and that's one thing you got to look at as well and and you know you've got to take those things into account you've got to say well you know this is what we've always done we've always come away with you know few Olympic golds and, and you know shit and world champs we, we top the medal table so why would you change you know and so it goes right back is it, is it better for the athletes or what you know and so that, and so you're like well it doesn't really matter because it's not about the athlete it's about the medals. <laughs> fair enough oh. <laughs> there,
0: there, there's one thing Right, and, and it, it's like a silly little memory I have of Lucerne in 2016. And it, it was a, you won in the rain. I, I seem to remember. And, and, and it, it was a bit of an odd um, World Cup, and the British almost got beaten by the Aussies, but the Aussies caught a crab on the line. And it, it, it seemed it seemed like a very incidentful. I think it was the last World Cup before the Olympics. Second to last, sorry. And it seemed like everybody decided they were going to have a go at you guys um, off the start. It was looking, I think, with 900 gone, like a pretty tight race. And then obviously second half, I was never quite sure if you guys had a push or people just couldn't keep up with
2: what you were doing okay so let's break down our racing when we first went in the pier and like we were just like ah, get out in front as hard as we can yeah yeah um and then you know and then hang on and that was and that was the way we did it so so sort of 209 210 maybe a little bit of 2011 as well um we were just like we've got to get out in front and then and then you can control the race and do bits and pieces um, after that 20, the, the 2010 race, if, if I've always said in different conversations, if, if we hadn't have been on Carapira, I still don't think we would have won um, just because I knew all the landmarks. Um, I still think that Pete and Andy burned too much energy between about 600 to go and about 400 to go because they put, like, if you, if you do the math, um, they went from, we didn't slow down but they went from being pretty much even to having like a full canvas. Okay. Now, if you take a, a boat length being about two and a half seconds, they've had to do in that time, a third of that. So oh, nearly, nearly a second worth of, of energy in 300 meters. So that's like going from a one, 137 split down to like a 134 for that amount of time. That's a lot of energy okay and i think they burned that there and then they didn't have they 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 did that it was good it's, it's where it worked but then when hamish and i burnt that three seconds of energy it was between the 350 and like the 250 to go 350 and about 200 to go and that's where we got in front and that's how it stayed okay so i think they just burned it at the wrong time if they hadn't have burned it there and they'd actually gone at like that 350 to go i don't think we would have we would have caught them um but that was the way we, we raced our races, was try and get in front, etc. cetera. After that race, we were like, shit, we were too busy worrying about those pricks and everyone else in the race to just race our own race. So then we just broke it down and we said, OK, we don't need to be in front out, out of the blocks. We just need to not slow down as much. So then all we started doing was being getting out of the blocks, not not punching it out because we were just finding we were feeling like shit about the 500 meters, you know, like, like as if, as everyone does, we were gagging for it rather than being composed, going right, here we go. Now we're into the race. Cause the race, you know, you talk to when you're in race doesn't start till the K and we just took that philosophy on. Whereas it's like, okay, let's get in good shape to the K and we'll see how we go. And so when I data mined and I data mined over lockdown here in New Zealand last year, and I took all our, all our 500 segments, and all our big races and our finals, we only slowed down on average less than a second between the first and second K. Okay, um, we would slow by nothing, literally nothing. By point, we actually went faster by 0.01 of a second on average between our second 500 and our third 500. Okay, and that was that was our goal. Our goal was to be even split the middle K, no fade, no fade in the third 500 at all. Okay there's not really many crews in the world that can do that probably none and there were quite a few occasions in our um in our time where we went we we splitted the race we went faster in the second k than we did in the first k not many people can do that so that was really what happened we we t- if you look at our numbers as well we didn't actually start slowing down in the first 500 maybe half a second from what we were doing originally but not much. It was just that everyone was trying to go out a little bit faster, try and get in front, and try and hold it on. But I've always said, while everybody's thinking about what we're doing and trying to get up to Eric and Hamish level, we've already moved on. Yeah. You know, we're, we've already we've already done that other step. So while everyone's got to where we used to be, we're already here. Um, and so that was our thought process. We've got to be improving all the time. There was n- we never ever sat there going, oh, okay, well we won last World Cup. No reason why we won't win this one. So, yeah, people did give us a little bit more of a run for our money in that, in that sort of second 500. And even coming into the third 500, you know, there was before, – before 2012, I think there's about two or three occasions that we were behind um, at the 1,000. After that, there was probably 10, 12 that we weren't leading at the 1,000. Um, and, and that was just our philosophy. It's like, well, okay, people have got quicker – But then coming into the last 500, in that second cycle to Rio, I think there might have been one. I don't even know if there was one occasion where someone was leading us with 500 to go. Whereas prior to that, there was about four or five situations. So that's that's the sort of stuff you get into. So our race was just dictated around even split, no fade, got to keep it going. So we never had like these big moves. We've got to mate, we've got to make a move, we've got to get in front of a crew, we've got to burn some energy. The whole race was burning energy from the start to finish. And that's what when we talked about before, that's what these 5K races were doing. You know, like I, I've got I've got a data sheet which I found over lockdown when I was looking through everything. Um we did like a 16, is it like a 1612 or a 1613 5K? Like it's it's sub five thirty it's uh, sub six thirty for 5k
0: <laughs> Sorry, wait, you, know, wait I was you said you did a 16 12 yeah, yeah. 5k in a pack?
2: yeah
0: oh that's infuriating yeah. oh bloody hell
2: so, so so we're going you know we're doing we're doing times like that and and it's just like you, you're kidding me but it was it was like a 16 it was like a 628 pace or something for a 5k okay we had it we had a, a nice tailwind i wouldn't have said it was like amazing but that was the stuff we had to push ourselves to. So when we got into a race, you could be at red line and just sit there Mm. rather than going up and down going, Oh, okay. We need a controller. Oh, now we're going to make a move. Oh, now we're going to make a move. It was just like, go, go, go. We, We tried to race the pier. Like you race an eight, you get out, you hold the speed and you just don't slow it down. You know, okay. You've got to gear everyone up and you've got to keep them going, but you're only gearing people up to not slow down. You're not gearing them up to make the boat go faster. You're only gearing them up to not slow it down, right? That's an eight. You're not, you know, you, you can't go, right, come on, boys, let's, let's like drop three splits, not going to happen. But you've got to gear them up to keep the speed where it is. Um, and that was the situation with us, is that was what our philosophy was, was just like, if we can do that, we truly believe that nobody else could keep up with us. And that was basically the situation, you know? And even when we came into Rio, like you look at that Rio race, and I've watched that many times, Um, Like, I vividly, like, and the one thing that people don't realize with that Rio race is that was our final, was that was our third slowest race we ever did. Out of all those fucking races, it was the third slowest race we ever did because the weather was fucking terrible. Shit. And and I knew it was going to be bad. And so I said to Hamish, don't worry about the crews. They're going to burn their gas in the first 750 and we've just got to be clean and we'll come through. And that's exactly what happened. And then while everyone's burnt massive amounts of energy in the first and second 500, everyone drops four seconds in the third, literally, and we drop like half a second, and that's why we get to the 500 and we're 500 metres, and we're five seconds in front. It wasn't because we like it, we just didn't slow down, and that was, the, that was the aim of the game. Don't need to be leading here. Don't need to have a massive, massive start. We've got to be clean and we've got to even split. Okay, and we, we slowed down in the last 500 because – We just didn't want to fall out or make something stupid, Um, but we didn't have to sprint to the line. So while everyone else is catching back up on us, race is finished. As long as we don't screw that shit up, we're finished. We're done, Um, and that was the situation. That's what. Same in London. It was like people came back on us after we're nearly five seconds in front. It was like it wasn't because we just didn't want to sprint because we. You know, when you've got a sprint, the chance of shit going wrong increases eh? <laughs> and so our, our thing was like make it make it going and then you can control and you can do what you need to and if you do need to sprint it's in the bag but if you don't have to pull it out don't pull it out you know yeah. what, what are you sprinting for you're going to win doesn't matter um and, and so that was really the way that we tried to do it and 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 this is the other thing that a lot of people you know like world cups are so different where um you know by the time you get to the Olympics and you're racing those races, generally Olympic racing is so spread out because people have like burnt so much energy and heats and semis just to make it into the final, that there's not a lot left for the final. And that's why generally you watch Olympic races and there's a couple of people sprinting for it, but the positions are pretty much made up for themselves in the third 500. You're like, oh, well, there's, those four crews are gonna win the medals. Whereas at World Cups and, and World Champs, it's just so much tighter because I don't, there's just the pressure for people to make it into the next rounds is nothing like the Olympics, you know, and, and this is the whole pressure situation about going to those events, that they're pricks of events because they're not great for high performance because there's so much pressure against you that you go, okay, let, we'll, we'll just do enough to get through this round into like, into the semi. And you're like, no, actually we've got to go a hundred, you know, like, and, and if you give a hundred and that, when you go to the semi and you try and give a hundred, you only get 99% return. Then, if you make it in the final and you give a hundred percent, you only get ninety-eight percent return because you've had to go hundred the whole time. Whereas, if you can go 98%, 98, 98 by the time you hit the final, you can give a hundred and you're probably going to get a hundred, maybe ninety-nine. Okay, but that's that's the situation. But you've got to be good enough to do that, and that's why, like, Olympic racing is just uh, generally you watch it and it's pretty clear-cut.
0: Eric, I'm I'm aware that you know. We, we we've taken like an hour and 20 minutes of your time which, which is That's
2: right keep keep going i've probably got another 20 odd minutes or more anyway okay
1: but fantastic <laughs> i'll put the kettle on <laughs>
0: yeah, I, there you I, go. I, I, I wanted i wanted to find out um a little bit about the stuff that you're doing now with Asensi and stuff like that and just yeah just tell us a bit about that
2: yeah so um everything comes to an end um, I I when I made the decision to come to an end it was a lot around my son because he was autistic um, and I, I was I, I was looking back at memories <laughs> you know you get them on your phone or on your Facebook. Um, I was still training this time in 2017 so I had come back I, I had a knee operation and I wasn't going to go away and race but I was really keen to go back in the eight and the idea was to take a year off Hamish was going to take maybe a year. Uh, on the bike, and then possibly come back or maybe go to the comm games. And I was like, that's cool, mate. I'll run the eight, and then we'll come back together and, and we'll, we'll give it a whirl. And so that was my goal. Like, I wasn't really ready to finish. But then I started when Zach had started school, I was going to school and, and helping out with uh, like learning assistance and, and getting stuff around like his learning. um And so I started doing a lot of that and actually not training a lot because I'd be like, oh, hey, no. I'll have to do an erg tonight because whatever. So I just started myself sort of shifting away from priorities. And that's really where it came. Um, and so then his his priorities became my priorities. And I was like, you know what? I really don't see me doing the time to do that. Um, and so that was a natural thing of like, I, I made the decision and I'm happy with it. And I went away. I was like, cool. Hindsight's great because if I was still going, I'd be coming up thirty nine, going shit. I don't even know if we're going to the Olympics this year. <laughs> um, but but that was that was a situation. So on top of that, um, I was I was doing little bits and pieces of work here and there. Um, started working here with Concept Two in New Zealand, um, and then got involved with the Sensei, so like connected coaching on the row machine. Um, and so things were things were there and in place. And so that was really like where i was going to um i had i had skills and opportunities before i went into rowing and i think this is one of the crucial things and i'm going to say it on every single podcast and i can every time i get interviewed with people as an athlete you've got to be doing something you've got to be doing something okay and what i mean by that is don't just study don't just study you've got to be doing some work okay so it's it's hard because people are doing like um, BCOMs or whatever, or uh, sh- whatever they're doing, veteran management, whatever it is, um, you've got to be working for someone. Okay. And because if you're, if you're life, if you see your life expectancy being one, two, three, four Olympics, whatever the hell it might be. If you're working at a company, there's times where you have breaks. You've got afternoons off, you've got days off here and there, okay. And you can, and as if you find a company that you can work into, and you go and work for them, they're going to follow your journey. And if you're successful, awesome, okay, gives you the foot in the door. And that's the idea, is so that when you leave, because what's happening, and it happens with all sports people and every like in every place, they leave sport. Being let's use thirty-five year old, three Olympics, whatever it might be you go back to where the 22 year old graduate out of university comes in. It's not like, hey, you've been to a couple of Olympics, we're gonna put you in management. Doesn't happen, because where's your experience? And the problem with sports people is that we don't get that experience. We don't get um, learn that working life. Whereas if you've been doing that part time for 10 years, doesn't matter, you've learned what happens, you've learned the processes, you've learned all of this stuff. So when you leave, okay, you've just gotta realize that it's a big change in career it's like being a uh, in an investment banker and going right I'm going to go own a cafe or something completely fucking different but that's what you've got to that's what you got to understand that that's what you're going to do so for all the athletes out there like you've got to be doing something at the same time and if you don't you're going to leave and you're going to go oh yeah but I've got a uh, bachelor in commerce and one in, in business management and they'll go and what have you done you know so that's the biggest thing around all of this stuff with athletes leaving and then finding depression and all this sort of thing. um, I feel a lot of it is because they've just haven't done the things they needed to. So they go from being here to here in the life or now you're a 35 year old and there's this 24 year old that's telling you what to do because they're in the management position and you're like, whoa, hang on. Um, And I feel that that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. And you might not know what you want to do and that's fine. Take your time. But if you've been if you've had the workforce experience, that work experience or whatever it might be, it just makes that transition so much easier because you can go in and they can say, hey, look, shit, he's been an accountant or working at this accountancy firm for like 10 years part-time. They don't need to know that part-time was like probably 100 hours a year. It doesn't matter. You've still been part-time. Um, and, and that gives you that situation of being having a resume, having been able to work out, whereas a lot of people put this resume like, oh, okay, two Olympic gold medals. Yeah, oh, cool okay, so so where have you worked? Oh, you haven't worked since you left school because you went straight into a program. Hmm, okay. Okay, I see you studied, but you don't really have any experience. So th- this is what happened. So um, I was pretty lucky that I had operations management experience in bits and pieces. So, and I'd done the, the business management. So of course I could go into places, you know, now I'm business development manager here and for concept Two like ErgFit New Zealand. So, I I was there. I managed to go there, whereas you've got a lot of other people leaving going, man, I don't have a job. I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's one of the keys I think a lot of people need. Because back when I first started rowing, we were still working. You know, we were still working and rowing. Um, We were probably back where, like, the British team was probably in that late 90s, you know, type of thing where people still sort of had a job, and then they still came down. Like, you're trying to row full time but you're also trying to work part-time to pay your bills because you might be getting some funding, but you might not. We're seeing New Zealand's funding only really came in sort of 07, 08, 09 was like the first year where most people were getting like funded if they were in the squad. Whereas now you're in the squad, you're not getting much, but you're getting money. And so, and, and this is where This is where the whole thing around this high performance and pressure and stuff comes in because the other side of it is that they don't want you to work because the government money that they're giving you is for you to be good at rowing. Now, if you're affecting how good you can be at rowing by you working, that's not good for their investment. So this is where the complexity, again, adds another level because are you doing this in the best interest of your athletes? So when they leave, they're not going to be like, man, I'm fucking depressed because I've got no job. I'm going back to like uh, like minimum, just above minimum wage to start a fucking job. And yet you stop me from doing that. So who's at fault here? Um, and I think that comes into it. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty lucky with what I've done. Um, and that's really what I try and say to a lot of younger people. You've got to be doing something. You've got to be doing something. And even if you come out from like an Olympic cycle and you take a year off and you go and work somewhere and you do that job and then come back into the program, it needs to be done.
0: I've never, I've never thought about it like, like that. I mean, I've never been in yes, position, but so that is that is genuinely quite a gobsmacking perspective, and one I cannot imagine happening in GB at all. Well, it's what, um, it's yeah, a, and
1: it's what's the problem, and I mean, we were never good enough to be paid to row, so we we rowed while we worked, sort of thing as well. But having talked to some people. And seeing some of the stories that have come out about people who've retired after being in programs and struggled with mental health and struggled with actually finding their next foothold and their next, what they're going to do next, it just seems like such obvious common sense.
2: Yeah, I never, we never did a lot of... Um like sports psychology, we did a little bit, but you don't generally need it when you're winning. <laughs> um, you know, like, we, we, well, we did. We, no, but it's true, though. Like, we we didn't really need to go, okay, what, you know, we, we need to work together and we need our issues sorted and, fuck, we're not we're not getting on. And, you know, how do you combine a crew? You need that, big crews, fours, eights, whatever it is, because everyone's completely different. Um, but in, in, in saying that, I don't think they teach you, like, a realistic, like, punch in the head while you're rowing going, if you fucking don't do anything now, you're going to come out of this and you're going to be depressed as hell. Like, because you are. Like, you literally go from having zero opportunity. Like, you, the, the, the the there are transferable skills and we're talking skills. We're not talking experience. And that's the thing. We, we take transferable skills, teamwork, dedication, punctuality, commitment, all of that. And people go, fucking great skills. Love your skills. Want you part of our thing. Oh, oh but hang on. Have you ever actually like, worked as like in a team, you know, developing this and that. And you'd be like, no. Oh, okay. Uh, well, if you had, we'd love to have you in the team. See where I'm getting at? And this is the thing is you need to be doing that. And then that's how you flow through with it. But it is another level of that complexity, which I said, where no program is going to want you to be working part-time and taking away from the funding because you're taking away from your recovery, which is ultimately what part of your program that makes you good and makes you win. But you need to be doing it. And so you've got to find that balance. And, and that's where I truly believe. And I try and tell people you have to do it. You've got to, you've got to believe me because I've seen it. I've seen the people that have had transferable skills like um, Carl Meyer, who was with us in the four, like he was working for an engineer firm, you know, when we were in the four and then he rode right through Rio and then he tried to come back for London, you know, and he busted his back. But guess what? Went straight back into working as an engineer because he'd done it before. People looked at him and said, sweet, man, you're a world champion. Oh, shit, you've been to a couple of Olympics. That's that's cool. Um, Do you want to come and work for us? You know? And, oh, you're an engineer. You were working for such and such a firm in in Hamilton for like three years um, after your degree. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, come and work for us. Bang, you're an engineer, probably getting paid 100 grand, going, man, what was I rowing for? I should have been (laughs) an engineer the whole time. Um, but, But that's the situation. And so I truly believe it has to be done. It has to be accounted into the equation, and that's what I don't think's been done. They put all these life advisors and they put all these career planners and shit in place, but they're not looking at the big picture. I, I don't, I don't think they're looking at the big picture of what needs to be done. Are they talking to the employers, going, "Hey, would you employ this person?" And most of them will say, "What's their experience?" I, I would say 99 times out of 100, you'll get someone go, "Oh, that's cool. Okay, so, so what's your experience? What have they done?" So. You know what i mean
0: Uh, eric have you ever sat down with like national governing bodies and said things like this no
2: but it's not my place but this is what i mean is like you can you can you can talk to people and you can say stuff but what what might what i might believe is what they might not believe do you know what i mean and so I, i believe this and i've seen it and it worked for me but has it worked for anybody else and this is what you don't understand and that's why. Is there a is there a silver bullet to everything? No, um, but should this be an option for some people? Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it might not and be. It's, a it is. Point. Everyone's so different.
1: It might not be a silver bullet, but it could be another tool in the toolbox.
2: It is exactly. Yeah. What else, boys? Go ask anything. Oh, anything.
0: I, All well, right. I've, I've, I've got a bit of a personal question about uh, oh, no? about you. Your son, you, you mentioned he was autistic. I mean, is it is it okay to ask about that?
2: Yeah, go for it.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, did it surprise you how naturally you just said, "Look, I'm actually more comfortable helping out, working with my son than you know wanting to get back into training, wanting to go for that next next goal." I mean, what, oh, it's surprising?
2: perspectives. It's pers. Nah, it's perspective because you just look at it and you go, okay, if I, if I was continuing on in what I was doing, there'd be a limited amount of time that I'd be able to work with him. Um, you know, you're away from home, uh, like it's, it's a pretty stressful situation sometimes. And so you're like, okay, when, when you've got to go and work with some child psychologists or bits and pieces or even when you're at the school, like having the meetings and bits and pieces, you can't go training. And so you sort of got to sit there and go, well, I'm going to miss four years now five of his life, um, because you have to put the job as your priority when your job has been the rowing. So why not have him as your priority at the same time as having the job? And so when you need to be at school, you can generally do that. Whereas like, um, even when even when we were training like in the Rio cycle, um, there was a lot of times where I felt it was getting a little bit touchy between me and Bondi because i'd be like hey mate i've got to go to these appointments and i've got to do this and that because he was he was okay he was married um he got married like maybe 2013 2014 whatever it was but he had no no idea what kids are like you know nothing and like now you know we had a good chat the other day and he was like man i don't know how you did it you know i, I can understand now but that's the thing is like kids just add this whole other level because you're like okay you're going to have you're going to be quite old and antiquated and say right stay at home wife do do what you're told you know be be a stay-at-home mum but she's got her career that she wants to be doing so why is her career any different than yours just because yours is sitting on your ass and and you know going for Olympic gold might be hey i want to become a general manager or i want to become a ceo or i want to become this or that so why is there any different and you have to take the load you can't just say well not enough nah, yours isn't as important as mine but in a sports situation. The universe is like here and everything else has to get the hell out of there because you've got it it's your number one your decisions are made around that no weekends away no public holiday. you name it it happens so that's what becomes part of it and yeah so my decision was easy as hell to say look i need to go do him and you can walk away from it quite freely would i have still like to continue running yeah probably you know I, I was quite keen on going and being part of that aids program because it was something different would have loved to have seen what we could have got it to um but I needed to be seeing what was more important, and that was more important, and you just got to make that decision. Some stage in your career, um, you know, I was lucky I was able to go out on my terms, whereas you get a lot of people that they lose form, they, they miss selection, or they get injured or whatever, and it's taken away from them. That's tough, okay? Never, never done that, or they never quite got there, and then they've got to, you know, they're like, I, I just can't keep battling on. That's where you get the issue. So nobody leaves on exactly the same terms, I think, um, everybody does it in a slightly different way. Fair enough.
0: Thank, thank you very much for the answer.
1: It sounds like a no-brainer, and and uh, because I remember the story of um, Steve Redgrave, and it was one of his one of his children was crying, and he basically just went to his wife, "I'm going training now," and walked out the door. So it's nice to see that we've moved on in the last twenty odd years
2: a little bit. <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, that's crazy.
1: Can I ask a, a slightly this This is the sort of question that Lewin usually asks, but I, I'm going to ask it because it, it, it it's on the list, and we'll ambush you with it because I know you haven't had a chance to look at it. But the GB pair, which which gave you that uh, interesting race in Carapiro, was life less fun for you after Hodge and Reed went off to the fall? Did you miss them?
2: I I did miss them. Yeah, yeah, I did miss them because it became. It was just we knew that the chance of and like you know whoever was making the draw in world rowing, we were never ever going to meet each other anywhere along the way, and and it was a hundred percent rigged that way, a hundred percent. So we would never yeah exactly we were on we were on different sides of the of the draw. We're going to come in, um you know same same when you like arrived at Henley and we raced each other a couple of times at Henley. I think one time we may I think one year we might have met each other in the semi. Um, but yeah, because we, r- I think we raced the South Africans in the final, whatever it was. But um, it was always pinned that way. So it was just sort of like, okay, heats, oh, they're the same time. Oh, semis, oh, the same time. Here we go. And of course, you do as an athlete, you go, man, I race, we race that semi pretty hard. Shit. And we're the same time. You sit there in- at night going, ah, it's all on, you know, like it is. And you watch it. Every Every crew does it, everyone watches. And go, shit! That semi final was like four seconds quicker than ours. Shit, were the conditions different? You know? Oh my god! And so you get this trepidation and you get this worry and you're like, and so that was with them. Um, And it was no different when we like when we furthered on. But at the time, it was just like this build up, build up, build up here, and everyone's like, oh, here we go, because because we were the standout, um, we were the standout peers in the world. Like apart from us two there was really no other country that could have put like a top pair out on the water. I think everybody tried at some stage or another, um, but that was it. Like we pretty much raced every top crew in the world. Um, And especially in those first few years, like there was us, other crews back here. So, you know, I think it was probably a little bit diluted in, in a couple of years because people were like, oh, well, I I don't really, I don't, I want to win or get silver rather than just looking for a bronze. Um, You know, the French took that on really well because they were like, man, okay, after when the Poms left, they were like, oh sweet, we've got like, there's another medal up for grab. So I feel that the the field sort of closed up quite a lot once the British left because people actually looked at the pair and went, shit, now there's more places rather than having to try and find a four to get together, you know, because fours are bloody hard to get together. Eights are almost impossible in in small programs. So um, it was just became a natural thing that I felt that the the whole peers program did sort of close up after they left, Um, which sort of meant for us that we were like, well, people started racing it differently. So I was thinking, yeah, it's going to be a bit of like a fizzle. But then the way that people were racing it, as I mentioned before, where people were gunning it out of the blocks, and okay, here's Eric and Hamish fifth at the 500. Um, it did actually make it a little bit more exciting. Um, I, I still felt, and it was only because of our training, I still felt we were good enough to win just about every time. Um, there were a couple of times which were a bit ropey because we'd been like um, like injured or sick or, or whatever it was, or we'd just turned up overseas, that so you'd be like, okay, it's a bit scratchy. Um, but apart from that, we never we never really had the same sort of pressure as such to perform as we did with the British. Um, and generally, what would happen when 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 we lined up against the British, it was like we've got to go from start to finish. We have to go hard. We can't let them get in front of us, um, you know. And I think the biggest one the biggest one with that, which was our first year in the pair in 2009 in Poznan like we went through the thousand and like 303 or some stupid thing. And then we had like a length and a half clear water on them. And then by the time the 500 came around, we were gassed and they're like on our stern and you're like, Oh shit. And you're just like, I remember winning that race and like going, wow, that was close, you know, but it was, it wasn't that close cause we moved away again with about two fifty to go, but then we just had nothing left and they like sprinted to the line. Um, but it was, that was the mentality you had to bring because when when they were on their game, they were super, super fast. But a lot of times, just a little bit off. Like they just, this is, and this goes, and I'll, I'll break this down a little bit. The one thing that you tend to find with New Zealand crews and you found with us is that we, because we've been training right through our summer, which is the off season for like the, the Northern Hemisphere, we hit the ground absolutely running. When we come to World Cups, you know, Generally you find that when the New Zealanders turn up to that second World Cup, we win a lot of shit. We normally, we normally, if not get top on the medal table, we're second behind the British. And it's because we are at our form, okay? The one thing that we don't tend to do, which which the British do really well and and it is the program, is that we don't really gain much more speed from from when we arrive in Europe. To when the World Champs come around. And that's why you go, oh, okay, hang on. The New Zealanders won six golds at, at uh at the second World Cup and they won three or four at the third, but then we only won two at the World Champs. And you go, What 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 happened? What changed? And it wasn't it was just because we don't really progress on because we're already going pretty fast. And that's why like you look at some of the races that Hamish and I had against Andy and Pete, and we're giving them a hiding at Lucerne and then they're a second behind us at World Champs, and you're going, okay, what the fuck happened? You know, what the hell happened between Lucerne and that? Because it wasn't, we got faster, but proportionately, they got massively faster. And it's just like, a lot of crews got quicker, and it's just that we, our program is not really designed around peaking, it's designed around being good all the time. And, you know, all that chat we had about the super fast stuff that we're doing, that's what we were doing all season, and we just managed to be able to hold that all the way through. So you go, do you want to be at your game all season or do you want to win the world champs? And our program with Dick was winning all season, not winning the world champs. Like the focus was still to win the world champs, but it was to be good all the way along. Um, rather than like a lot of countries going, oh, you know, we've done bug all in winter or we've been sitting on the erg and then we come out and we're starting to race and and sort of march maybe april and then by the time you hit world champs their trajectory has gone like this whereas we've just been like all the way through um and i think that's the one thing is that you've got it in your programs as well you've got to look at how do you want to do it do you want to win do you want to win the world champs or do you want to win the world cups and it's a completely different way that you approach the training to be able to do that or one or the other
1: yeah I i think hodge mentioned when we talked to him that um he was always he felt like sometimes outgunned when they when they met you early on and they were still kind of building into their season and building towards yep. their peak. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it no, it's it's because um... if
2: you look at if you take if you take all our if you take all our like World Cup races, there was a couple like 2010 in Munich. We were we were, we only beat them by about a second because um, Bondi had been had a, like a rib stress fracture, and I ended up rowing the double with a stop while we were training and bled so we had been in the pier we took we literally the only reason we went back in the pier is because dick said to Bondi, look if you can't row you might as well go home and so he was like oh shit okay um and so we turned we turned up in munich and the first row was like two days before before racing and we were like we hadn't been in the boat for like a month since the last world cup um and so it was a little bit rusty um but generally, like you look at the world, the Lucerne, by the time we're there, the average winning margin's probably three to five, seven seconds. Um, but then come World Champs, bang, different story. Um, and so that that's really just the situation that evolved. But that was how their program functioned. You know, this finishing camp up in the mountains is magical for them. And it's it's whether it's a placebo effect for them. I know that al- we never did altitude training, but I know that you can do less training but get good benefit out of it. And so when we talk to this whole stuff about the technique side of it, because you can't work as hard, you, it f- forces you to do a lot of technical stuff while you're still getting the benefit out of working really, really hard because you can't. Like if you try and train hard at that at that height, you will literally die. You will go, I, I'm, I-, I can't get the oxygen and the heart rate will be through the roof. But you can work to your heart rate zones, which is the same as doing... 20 k's down on flat water, but you're doing probably half the distance with more focus on technique or whatever it is. Um, and that's where they get that real finishing effort. And then they come into world champs and it doesn't matter what boat class it is with the British. Once you know they've been up at altitude and they come down, bang, they're on fire. And and that's just their finishing side. Whereas, see, our finishing side wasn't much. It was just continue doing what the hell we've been doing. Rest up a little bit. We still go a second or two quicker, but most of these other places are getting at least a split per 500, if not one and a half. And so they're going from doing a certain time in Lucerne to being five or six seconds quicker by the time you hit World chance.
0: One kind of final question we go for typically is, what do you reckon that rowing right now is doing right? What is it doing wrong and how does it get better?
2: Oh, far out. (laughs) <laughs> um, not doing not doing a lot wrong. Um, I think all of the the gender equality stuff's perfect. I think that's been a little bit like too late, if anything. Um, uh, doing wrong? I don't know. I don't know whether like. <sighs> You know, this whole lightweight debate, um, I, uh, you know, I, I can see where it's coming from because it's coming, as we've talked a lot about in this session, pressure down, where's the pressure coming from? IOC, visa, okay, got to make the decision. Um, and, and then the rowing is now the athletes, so the whole sport of rowing is like the athletes and you've got to just conform or fucking you're gone. Um so that's the situation. Maybe we just need to ball it up and say, no, we're going to keep doing this and then play the IOC's bluff. Maybe we're doing it wrong. Maybe we're like, no, we need the lightweights because we're going to lose a huge amount of, of rowers in the world because we don't have the lightweight stuff. Um, and and that's the situation. And, I, and and that's what I believe. It's like, this is, this is what's happening. Um, I do think that if we were to keep the lightweights, The one thing that I'd like to do with lightweights is up the weight a little bit and you weigh before you race. And what I mean by that is you go and stand on the scales, go pick the boat up and fuck off. Because what they're doing now is you're two hours beforehand, you've got these guys who are naturally a 76, 77 kilogram guy starving themselves, dehydrating themselves. And then they go and sit on the scales and they're like 72 or 71 and a half. And then it's like fucking eating and drinking. And so by the time they race, they're about 76 kilograms anyway. Put the weight up, put it up to 76. And then that's going to stop you doing that. So you're going to have all these naturally middle to lightweight guys and do it that way. Same with the woman, because they all have these, these suits that they wear that aren't the ones they race in that are like thin as fuck that nobody ever checks, like, hey, is that the same suit you raced at? No, and and it weighs, like, 50 grams, and it's made out of silk, but it looks the same. They all do it, and, of course, because it comes down to grams, whereas you, instead of making them 70 kilograms average, make it 75, and now you've got healthy lightweights rather than these poor Biafrins that are bloody starving and are so stressed. like watching the lightweights sit there, like, weighing out the amount of water they can have at dinner, and I'm, like, going, oh, are you kidding me? Like, are you shitting me? You know, and you're just going, this is not right. So that's one thing that I think could be done by are better. Just maybe call the bluff, um, change the weight of it so that it's a little bit heavier. And then you will get a lot more people that want to race in it. Keep the keep the double, keep the four, um, you know, put in a woman's one. I know you can't because it's Olympics, but bring that into the program because you could probably have them coming to world champs. Because a lot of people would still love to come to World Champs and race that sort of stuff. Um, I think we need to look at different distance stuff, have to. Um, Okay, it would change the dynamics of rowing, but do we need, and I know people will go, oh, but rowing's always been two kilometres. And you go, yeah, but you could look how many years ago, what, 30 years ago, everyone used to race two and a half k's on the row machine at the World Champs. Do you know what I mean? It's moved on. Um, you know, do we need to look at the distance that we're doing? Because if you take five hundred meter races or you take it slightly different or something like this, um I know it changes the people that are in the boats and that sort of stuff, but it changes the training. The training no longer needs to be endurance training of 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 like 30, 40 hours a week. It now be, can become shorter, a little bit more focused, and it's gonna be a better event to watch. And rowing is just shit event to watch. It's why we don't have people turning up. It's like, oh, they've started. I'll just wait here for a little bit. Oh, now they're coming. Yeah, you go across the finish line. Okay. Imagine watching one race to the next and a minute and a half finish, you'll be like, shit, that was fun. Wow, that was so close. Like kayaking and stuff like that. It's fast, it's fun, it's enjoyable. Um, I just think, and I know people will go, yeah, but it's always been 2K. Look, honestly, if you've got to keep your sport in the Olympics or you've got to do this, sometimes you've got to make those decisions that nobody wants to make is we need to change our sport. Otherwise, we're going to be in a shit situation in a few years and go, like, worst-case scenario, 20 years from now, they go, look, we we, we, we want to hold rowing at this place costing too much to build the facility. We don't have it. Um, we, we think we want to have some new and upcoming sport in there. We've got to keep rowing relevant, and we have to make those decisions now. Because if you the the, the day that they turn around and go, well, look, we actually want to cut more people out of rowing, you're like, well, why? And they'll be like, well, you just there's just not enough people in the world that are rowing. So, does that need to happen? Do we just need to have like a world champs where we go, you know what, this world championships next year is 500 meters. You know, and then you can bring it to different places in different countries where they've got like a 500 meter section of water in the middle of their town or uh, just outside of town or like um, some lake. You you look at all the lakes around that you could potentially race like that are probably 600 meters long. There's a lot of them, you know. Um, so I, I know people will go, you're an idiot. You've raced 2K. That's what you did. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. But I, you look at how fast our world is changing. You look at what the shit we're in at the moment you look at the way social inequalities racism or the whole lot and bah, the mess that some of the shits in at the moment it's got to change it's got to change and we've got to do the exact same um we've got to look at why people aren't doing right why is it is it time is it money is it this and if and if you find that people are like i just don't want to train because it's way too long um i can't give up the time and you're like so if you could give up like less time and row they'll be like yeah i'd love to because it'd be fun it'd be exciting um is that what we need to do you know so i just i think that's what needs to happen is i think we need to have a really hard look at it and people are going oh okay well we want to do this mixture of you got to do some coastal rowing and something in the olympics i don't think that's the case i don't think that's the case keep it flat make it a 10 lane fucking final or something like that on on the lake eight lanes 500 meters because why couldn't you You know, there's no reason why you couldn't. Makes it more exciting. Um, Yeah. And so I think that's something that needs to be looked at by that. And, you know, the only way you're going to do it is if you try it and you see what it's like, um, you know, and but you've also got to have that buy in from all the countries around the world. So trying to get everyone on board at the same time is another issue. So it just starts getting so complex. But You've got to start looking now at why certain sports have made the changes that they had and how the, how some of them have been successful and how others haven't. Um, and you've got to use those examples and you've got to look at it and say, well, this is what we need to do. You know, Even if you have to have another specific world championships and say, right, this is, this is uh, the world-growing sprints championships and it's 500 meters. You know, and then you see who turns up. And then all of a sudden, you might find people are more willing to go to a sh- uh, sprint distance championships than they are to a 2K championships. Okay? It changes the dynamic of the people that are rowing, but that's it. You, and then people will go, you know what? I'd rather go to this world championships than I would to the 2K. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But I just I just worry that we're short-sighting ourselves just with the, the speed that the world is developing that rowing is going to be in trouble. Rowing could become really, really in trouble in the next sort of 20 years at the top end, at the Olympic end, um, and just the cost end and the time end because people just don't want to give up that much time anymore. Kids are not willing to, they'd rather sit there and, and technology's growing so fast that it's like, meh, you know, rather be here than there. Um, I, I just feel that that's, and no different with, you know, the generation that we're talking about it now, when we started this conversation about entitlement and bits and pieces. And so if that's, that's moved on really fast, like that's moved on. We're only really hearing about it now, but you don't, you haven't had all these people from the nineties or eighties coming out saying this and that a lot of them are like, man, it's just what happened. Um, but now that's moving really quickly. So, I think that needs to be conversations that need to be had and it needs to be experimented with. So possibly, you know, I know we're trying with indoor, coastal, but I think that some other drastic measures need to happen. So that's that's probably what needs to change.
0: Fair enough. Eric, mm. thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's um, it's, it's been brilliant. it's gonna be a fantastic
1: episode yeah they say never meet your heroes and they are absolutely wrong eric that was amazing thanks so much for coming on man
2: no no sweet guy no like i love i love sharing the story and and having a yarn because you know rowing rowing for a lot of people you know it's 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 part of your life and you've always done it and what amazes me is you you meet so many people like in your travels and people are, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that for a season when I was at school, and so they, they understand it. It's quite a big sport that touches a lot of people, and that's what we we forget. And then there's a lot of people because of, of they see it on t- you know, it's, it's not a sport we see often, but we see it on TV a little bit here and there. So it's still relevant, but not, like, super relevant. So, um, you know, you get a lot of appreciation from people, um, and and you can talk about it in the same lingo, Uh, you know, and, and it's just the way it goes, you know, oh, my friend did that. Yeah, no, they loved it. They had a great time, you know, they did it for a year at school. So, so everybody knows someone that's either done it or doing it or been there, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it is a cool sport and I've, and like, I've had an amazing time doing it. It was, it was a shitload of fun. Um, you know, it was hard and there was a lot of things that, you know, you're like, you know, but at, at the end of it, you look back and it was part of your life, you know, and it will always be part of your life. Um. You know, for as for as long as you go, whether you're successful or not in the sport, it's always part of your life, and it's taught every single person that's done it some amazing life skills um, that you can use going forward. Um, you know, and that's and that's the cool stuff about it. Very true.
1: Very true. Here, here. Well said, that man. We shall let you get about mm. your day, into your first beer of the morning.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, is it past? Oh, it's nine o'clock here. Right, I'm going to go have a brewski. No, I've got to go do some work. Right. Thanks
1: very much. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe. Take care. And thanks again. See yeah, soon, you man. guys
2: too. Hope, hope hope you get out of lockdown someday soon. Yeah, yeah. one yeah. of these months.
1: Yeah, sometime <laughs> in the next decade or two it would be great.
2: Oh, that and and that is anyone watching this, honestly, ah, it, it's a it's a it's kind of a thing. Okay, I'm going to use the word because that's about where you got to put it. Um, and and it's deadly. People have to wake up to it um, and and this is why like we we didn't even get onto to the situation but you know i I don't think the Olympics should be happening this year I'm sorry but I don't think it should be going ahead because you cannot send people overseas and put them in danger. People are like and I know it's you've worked for it for so long and I if I was an athlete I'd probably be going nah, let's go let's go let's go but it's all it's going to take is you go overseas someone from your program and they die because Okay, there's statistics around healthy and and fit people being pretty good with it, but there's that one occasion where someone does or, you know, oh, your coach died. Oh, shit, that sucks, you know, but one death, too many. And so, you know, stay safe, social distance, wear a mask, because this shit's going to be here for a long time, like years and years, if not forever. We're going to have to keep on top of it, and that's why the whole world has completely changed. It's completely changed. We're not going back to how it used to be. This is like the new normal, and we're going to have to start growing the new normal from where we are. So stay episode safe, two. everybody.
1: Episode two. We'll yeah. come back to this in episode two, but well, that's oh, <laughs> <scene. laughs> All good. Okay. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Eric. Take care.
2: See Much you soon. Thanks, Bye. guys. Yeah. Okay.
0: And, ladies and gentlemen, that was Eric Murray. Um, one of the most outstanding podcasts that we've ever done. I wouldn't say there's one take home. Everyone who is involved in the sport of rowing, you know, from from the highest levels of achievement right down to the club level, has got something that if they spend an hour and a half listening to that, they will take on board as being very, very important. And I, I, I just think there are hugely important statements that have been made in that podcast. And I'm really grateful to Eric for taking the time.
1: But for one am speechless, which, you know, never happens. Um, we've been really lucky with the guests that we've had on the pod. We've always learned a lot. And we usually have a chat like this at the end of um, our interviews to say, you know, the, 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 the things that struck us and the things that we enjoyed and the things that we learned. There's so much there from from where, where athlete abuse and athlete welfare issues might come from. You know, as, as rowers, we all know that we train hard. We all think that we train hard at whatever level that we do. And it's actually, you know, that was a real eye-opener. You think you're working hard, you really aren't. I mean, one of the reasons they were the best in the world was because the training was absolutely brutal and gladiatorial. Um, yeah. I love I the fact that someone who was so successful... And knows that he's so successful was the first person to say, if you want to get better, you have to be prepared to fail every day. And it takes, it takes a very self-confident person to put their ego to one side and be humble enough to fail in order to rebuild themselves and get better. Cause we all reach certain stations in life and certain levels of success and we know what works and we tend to replicate our, our patterns. And it, it seemed with the Kiwi pair, it was all about, we know these patterns work. Now let's ditch them and find the next one. So we're always one step ahead.
0: You know, um, I, I I do think that, you know, we're, when we do this, you know, we need to like send this out to Hodge, um, to Jack Beaumont, you know, try to, you know, pass this around Leander, pass this around Mulsey, pass this around the GB squad, because there was advice there. But in terms of how to look after yourself as an athlete, how to promote yourself as an athlete, he's clearly done a very good job of both. And, and this idea that's like the number one thing that an athlete can do to protect, protect their own welfare is to gain work experience. You know, if you're an elite athlete, put some time aside to actually get paid for doing a job that you can, that you can say, look, when you finished your four years, eight years, 12 years of brutally hard training, and you need to go out into the real world to earn a living, you know, have that CV that you've got, you know, four hours a week somewhere. Um, you know, that, that was, that was a really important point that I never thought of once in my life. You know, I don't know, maybe we're, you know, he he's the whole GB squad have got like their little jobs on the side. Um, maybe, but it doesn't seem that way somehow.
1: No. And when we hear stories about athletes struggling with the transition, Eric was very, I think he was very frank um, about his own transition. And, and I have to applaud him for when he said, if it's a choice between going for another gold medal and my son, it's going to be my son every time. We have in this country, increasingly stories of athletes struggling with the, with the transition post their athletics career, especially when it's been such a big part of their life for so long and such a huge part of their, their identity. And he's arguing for more tools in the toolbox. Okay. So you might only do a hundred hours a year, you know, in an accountancy firm, in an engineering firm, in a, in a whatever, but it puts you in a better position when the pro when you come off the program and you start going for jobs up against 21 and 22 year olds just out of university if i had to characterize what we've just heard i would say there's a genre in literature called magical realism which is basically a realistic novel with magical elements like salmon Rushdie's midnight's children which is let's be quite frankly honest a book and that's about as much as we can say about it if i had to characterize what we've just listened to I'd say that's inspiring realism. That's someone who's reached the heights, which is inspiring, who's, who's very blunt about what it takes to be successful at that level, but who is also completely realistic about it. And it was really refreshing to listen to, to chat with him.
0: It was, it was brilliant. And before we go, I'm going to take this opportunity to say that um, London Youth Rowing is a pretty damn good organization. Um, the race, the Thames 2021, if you didn't get involved, make space in your diary to do it next year. I don't know how they're going to run it, whether they're going to just do it on Ergs again, but it was a great event. It just, you know, it was a week of actually kind of feeling like you were going to a race again, an actual proper race and it was brilliant to basically be up against the best part of a thousand other crews, um, which was really good fun, and we managed to raise £101,000.
1: Yeah, I think we're going to come back and talk about Race to Thames and London Youth Throwing because being involved was an honour and a privilege a fantastic team. It shows what rowing and rowers can do that makes a real difference in the lives of, of everyone, and not just for London Youth Rowing, but in local communities. Uh, but everyone at uh, Race the Thames, London Youth Rowing, uh, Andy Hodge, all of the team deserve a round of applause. It was fantastic to be part of. So well done guys and girls. It was awesome. I think so. Um, I would say bow side holding, stroke side falling in, but you know what will happen if I do it. I'll just be in a cold river again. So do you want to do the signing off bit? (sighs)
0: Stroke side holding, bow side out. Good night, ladies and gentlemen.